Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. So many different men, they all say it almost defied description. You won't believe me if I tell you, it, in, you know, when they're referring to the conditions on the ship. That's Katie Turner Getty, a regular contributor to the Journal of the American Revolution, discussing her new article on the prisoners of war held on the HMS Jersey. And she's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publishers of the new book, Daniel Morgan, A Revolutionary Life, by Albert Louis Zamboni, available now. Hello everyone, I'm Brady Kreitzer, welcome back to Dispatches. On today's episode, we're going to sit down with a longtime JAR contributor, Katie Turner-Getty, as she looks at one of the darker sides of the American Revolution. Whenever we think about prisoners of war or prisoner of war camps, where does our mind go, historically that is? Uh, sometimes maybe it goes to the American soldiers held during World War II. Other times maybe the terrible circumstances suffered by both northern and southern prisoners throughout the Civil War. We often do not, however, think about the plight of prisoners in the American Revolution. Now, for me personally, this was a subject I did spend quite a bit of time on in my 2015 book, Hessians, Mercenaries, Rebels, and the War for British North America. But it was a study of the prison experience of German auxiliary soldiers, otherwise colloquially known as Hessians, in the American Revolution. And their treatment, with a few exceptions, uh, was not all that terrible. Uh, at one point, they were even held in the city of Boston, uh, and they lived a reasonably comfortable life there. It was nothing, and by the way, I say reasonably comfortable, it was nothing like what the American prisoners of war suffered in the prison ships along the Atlantic coast, specifically on board the HMS Jersey. Katie Turner-Getty is... Uh, a Boston native, you can tell by her accent right away, it's a dead giveaway, and she cares very passionately about the subject. I don't have to tell you about the wonderful revolutionary history of Boston. It, it's everywhere. She went to college, as she'll mention, in the shadow of the Bunker Hill Monument. But this is a story that takes place off of New York City, specifically Brooklyn. And it really, uh, I think, leaves a sort of lasting bitter taste in your mouth uh, whenever we think about uh, really how nasty and terrible the war could be. Today's episode is a feature not just on the politics of being a prisoner of war, but also the methodology of keeping prisoners of war. I think personally what's most fascinating about it, and of course you're free to disagree, 
is that she also goes into great detail detail about the really terrible maladies and illnesses uh, that pervaded so many prisoners of war, really even into the 20th century. Uh, we'll talk about smallpox, we'll talk about dysentery, yellow fever, among others, uh, in a very professional way, relying totally on primary sources. Of all the interviews we've done so far in Dispatches, there hasn't quite been one like this. It can be technical, it can be brutal, and I have to warn you, pretty gruesome. But Katie Turner Getty does a wonderful job using primary sources and finding really wonderfully evocative uh, quotes and quotations from the men who were there. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Katie Turner Getty. Katie Turner Getty, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, I'm a frequent contributor to Journal of the American Revolution, and I'm fortunate enough to be on the editorial team. Um, as far as my formal education, I attended Bunker Hill Community College in Charlestown, Massachusetts, which, as you might guess, is pretty much in the shadow of the Bunker Hill Monument. I was a history major at Wellesley College, where I focused on revolutionary America, and then I went to law school at night while holding down a full-time day job. And um, that all just kind of led to me researching and writing like crazy about the revolution. This could be a pretty macabre topic overall. Uh, what initially drew you to it? Um, you know, it's interesting. It was not a topic that I knew a lot about at first. I had kind of a... a general awareness of the fact that there were prison ships moored um, all around lower Manhattan during the war. And as I kind of started reading narratives written by the men on board, um, several of the men who were confined on the Jersey ended up writing narratives later in life. So decades after their imprisonment, they wrote kind of so passionately and emotionally about their experience. It really drew me in. It, it fascinated me. I started off by reading um, Captain Thomas String's narrative, and he kind of really drew me in. So as I read about the conditions, there, there are so many avenues I, I could go in. Um, but in this, for this particular article, I kind of focused on the disease on board the ships and the uh, kind of like a, a sensory exploration of the suffering of the prisoners. There's a lot of very striking, I think, uh, invocative descriptions in this article, uh, especially that of the prison ship itself. So what is a prison ship and had the British used this method before? Um, yeah, confining prisoners on ships was kind of a known idea. They started, the British started doing this in America, um, around New York City, uh, like right around the time they occupied uh, New York City. And I think they kind of started it just because they were running out of places to confine all of the prisoners, all the American uh, soldiers that they had taken uh, during the battles of New York. So, um, but generally speaking, something I think that's important to note is that later in the war, it was mostly sailors 
who were confined on the ships, not so much soldiers. So in what I've come across is that there were some soldiers confined on the ships in 1776, but they were generally moved off them. And then by later in the war, it, it was privateersmen. It were it was sailors who had been captured um, while they were serving on privateers. They were captured by the British Royal Navy and then uh, confined on these ships. Whereas soldiers, like continental soldiers, militiamen, um, they, they seemed to usually be put into jails on land, such as the provost or the sugar house. Um, in my in my jar article, death had almost lost its sting. I talk about a lot of men, uh, and I kind of quote them, and those are all sailors. So Thomas String, Thomas Andros, Christopher Hawkins, they were all privateersmen. Um, at any given point in the war, there were probably a, a few prison ships and hospital ships in use in different locations in the lower Manhattan area. Um, I use the term hospital ship kind of loosely because the conditions on the hospital ships were pretty much just as bad um, as on the regular prison ships. But the most famous prison ship was probably HMS Jersey. You've just mentioned the HMS Jersey, obviously the subject of your article. Uh, Tell us about the Jersey. It was tailored to be a prison ship. I think that the Jersey uh, was probably like the biggest, baddest, most notorious of the prison ships. It was an old British warship. Uh, It was built in 1736. It had been used uh, in war in the European theater for decades. Its history, uh, once it comes to America, I think it's a little bit murky. It seems like around 1777, it was moored around New York City and maybe in use as a supply ship, maybe as a hospital ship. But it seems more clear that by 1777, it had been hulked out and refitted for use as a prison ship. So that means that it was kind of no longer a seagoing vessel, and it was entirely stripped of its masts, its rigging, its sails, um, any useful parts at all, and uh, was no longer capable of going to sea. So they just chained it in this area of mudflats and shallows off the coast of Brooklyn um, called Wallabout Bay. And, oh, its portholes had all been sealed shut, uh, even though they knew it was going to be used for prison ships. So they drilled small air holes about every 10 feet on the ship and uh, covered them with with iron bars. And it was, um, well, actually, I, I pulled out a quote from, One of the prisoners, Thomas Andros, he said, nothing remained but an old, unsightly, rotten hulk. Her dark and filthy external appearance perfectly corresponded with the death and despair that reigned within. One of the things that I really love about this article uh, is that you find all of these amazing quotes, uh, quotations and descriptions from the men on board. Uh, One describes the Jersey as hell on earth. So, uh, what does a ship need to be like, I suppose, to be considered hell on earth? Yeah, the men, re- I mean, the men really tell it best. You know, um, they employed many colorful phrases to describe the Jersey, um, a hell on earth, hell afloat. Um, and yes, I mean, it, it, 
it's almost indescribable. And it's so funny because over and over in so many sources, so many narratives, so many different men, they all say it almost defied description. You won't believe me if I tell you in, you know, when they're referring to the conditions on the ship. Um, the men were, once the men were confined to the ship, they were basically allowed to walk around on the decks during the day. But at night, they were herded below deck by guards and locked into the hold. Um, they had no opportunity to wash, no clean clothing. Um, you know, they were, the provisions were rotten and rancid. The ship was crawling with lice. Uh, the men suffered dreadfully from lice infestations. And depending on the season, they were exposed to either like literally almost suffocating heat in the hold or um, frigid cold temperatures and frostbite. Um, diseases that, that I talked about a lot in my article, like dysentery, yellow fever, smallpox, raged. And um, again, Thomas Andrews, I'll let him tell you, um, he said that disease and death were wrought into her very timbers. I think one of the really valuable parts of this article is how you describe uh, the illnesses that took many lives, but were also very common in the 18th century, one of the first being dysentery. Uh, so could you tell us about dysentery and maybe what life was like with this disorder in very close quarters on the Jersey? Yeah, um, exactly. Dysentery is also called the bloody flux. Um, it was a really contagious disease spread by contaminated food, contaminated water. Um, dysentery caused severe stomach cramps and basically uncontrollable bloody diarrhea. So the gods on the Jersey employed this really terrible practice of basically only letting one or two men up on deck at any one time during the night. So hundreds of men uh, were confined in the hold of the Jersey. They were locked in every single night uh, with dysentery, with only one or two of them ever being allowed up at one time. So as you can imagine, um, they had no choice but to, as, as another prisoner, Christopher Vale said, to, they had no choice but to ease themselves on the spot. And so in the morning, the area, like 12, the, an area of 12 feet surrounding the hatches was literally covered in excrement from the prisoners. Um, also, another prisoner, Christopher Hawkins, said that as he'd be laying on the floor of the hold at night, he'd be literally trampled and, and trod on by prisoners who were running trying to get up the hatch, uh, but he would end up being besmeared with their bloody filth. I don't know if this is any more positive uh, or lighter, so to speak, uh, but what about yellow fever? You write about that quite frequently. Well, I guess the one good thing is that yellow fever, because it's a mosquito-borne illness, was um, not not very prevalent in the winter, but it was definitely kind of a summertime disease. Um, distant, uh, yellow fever seemed to kind of have a, an, an accompanying delirium or like a, a hallucination symptom. And me, these men would become delirious with fever 
while they were all kind of locked in the hold in the summer heat, uh, suffocating amongst hundreds of other men, not able to even find enough room to lay down and stretch out on the floor, uh, suffering with dysentery. We haven't even talked about smallpox yet. Uh, And you had these men with yellow fever who were delirious and hallucinating. Um, Thomas Andros said that he would sometimes find himself having to restrain the man who was, you know, laying next to him uh, to prevent them, to prevent the man, you know, from getting up in a hallucination, staggering around the hold, trampling on other men, adding to the chaos, you know, in the darkness of the hold. And uh, Thomas would try and hold him in place with sheer strength. Um, Also, something that's really kind of chilling is that it wouldn't be unheard of to hear a call in the, in the night, um, in the hold, someone might call out, take heed of yourselves. There's a man stalking around the ship with a knife in his hand. So, you know, unfortunately a very ill hallucinating prisoner, uh, might find a weapon of some sort and just kind of start slashing in the hold. Smallpox really remains one of the, the, the worst killers, uh, in some of the more isolated parts of the world today. Uh, in many ways, it seems to me to be the worst disease that was on board the Jersey. Uh, could you tell us about the smallpox outbreak? Yeah, there's something about um, smallpox that's that's kind of very chilling, um, very poignant and sad, um, because it could end up, I think, being such an agonizing death, and uh, it, it had a very high mortality rate. Um, one prisoner on board the ship, uh, Captain Thomas String, when he was first taken prisoner, um, he ended up boarding the ship at night. So he really couldn't see very much. He was in the hold in the pitch blackness all night. And in the morning, when they let all the men come up on the decks in the morning sunlight, he kind of took a look around him and he realized that he was kind of surrounded by men with smallpox because he could see the pox on their flesh. And so you can kind of imagine his dawning horror that he was in this environment and he had never had smallpox. So the one benefit that smallpox bestows is that if you survive it, you have lifelong immunity. Um, but, you know, someone who, who didn't have it, wasn't immune to it, was certainly at high risk of contracting it. So Captain Dring uh, kind of took matters into his own hands and he decided to inoculate himself And by inoculating yourself, you sometimes, you stood a better chance of surviving because sometimes the, the disease would, would hit you a little bit lighter than if you caught it kind of in the natural way. So once you were able to survive it, you then had that lifelong immunity. So one night, um, he decided to inoculate himself and that consisted of scratching the palm of his hand with a pin and then obtaining some pus or smallpox matter from a man, from another prisoner who had the pox, and he would kind of um, embed all that matter into his palm, into the scratch, and then bind it up, purposefully transferring the disease to himself in the hopes that it would kind of, you know, fester and he'd develop full-blown smallpox but survive it. And luckily, that is what happened to Captain Dring. He developed a fairly light case and survived. But one of uh, the 
the people that were serving on the same privateer as him, it was actually, it was a boy, it was a 12-year-old boy, he also was inoculated for smallpox while on the Jersey. Um, But his disease ended up taking a really fierce turn. And the outlook was very dire. And so there's a very poignant part of Captain Dring's narrative where he describes sitting up all night long in the pitch blackness of the hold, holding this poor 12-year-old boy who um, was died an agonizing death, writhing and screaming for his mother. And it really affected uh, Captain Dring enough that he he still wrote very poignantly about it 40 years later um, after it happened in his narrative. What hope did the Americans have of actually getting off that ship? How did most of them end up leaving? Um, many men were formally exchanged in prisoner exchanges. Some decided to enlist in the British service rather than spend one more day on the Jersey. Some enlisted with a design to escape the British service and, you know, come back to America. But um, most poignantly is that many, many men died and they only got off the Jersey in body bags. Um, Every night without fail, men died in the hold. So every morning when the guards opened the hatches, uh, a working party would remove all of the bodies of the men who had died overnight. And they would be sewed up into their blankets and ferried to the shore of Wallabout Bay. And typically, um, they'd be thrown into a shallow pit altogether or buried in a shallow hole and just kind of covered with a few shovelfuls of sand. So their bodies uh, remained kind of partially uncovered and their bones uh, remained on the shore of the wall about for years after the war. This is one of those elements of the revolution that's not really talked about much. Uh, What should the legacy of this event be? What should our takeaway be? You know, it's interesting. I was reading an article very recently in um, the magazine put out by Sons of the American Revolution, and I'm sorry I don't have the author's name uh, handy at this moment, But he employed a quote that I have thought of over and over several times. I I only read this uh, this, um, article after I wrote my own, but he said that liberty is the light for which many have died in darkness. And I think that quote is so fitting uh, for the men that died in the Jersey and the pitch black and all the prison ships. Um, in the pitch blackness of the hold. There is, to my understanding, though I've never been there, there is a monument in the area. Um, The Jersey was abandoned after after the peace treaty was signed um, between America and the British. uh, The Jersey was just abandoned, and it sort of sunk into the sands of Wallabout Bay, and it was never removed. So when they were, um, I guess, constructing the Brooklyn Navy Yard, they kind of came across its bones. And uh, finally, that spurred, I think, some type of action. And there is a memorial, to my understanding, in that area, in Brooklyn, uh, you know, that kind of pays tribute to the thousands of men that, that lost their lives in the prison ships. You've written a great deal for the journal already. Uh, let me ask, what are you working on next? Um, well, I'm happy to report that 
I'll be spending at least the next six months uh, working on projects related to the prisoners, um, sailors and soldiers, the men who were confined on the prison ships and also in the jails of New York City, um, which I'm really happy about because I'm just not ready to leave uh, these men yet as as a study. Um, I feel very kind of involved with learning about them right now. Um, I do have some speaking engagements lined up, so I'll be talking about the prisoners at some uh, Society of Founders and Patriots events, some Sons of the American Revolution events, and if anyone wants to get in touch with me, my uh, website is katieturnergetty.com, and I'm on Twitter at ktgetty13. Katie Turner Getty, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Brady, for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.